Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, this week I'm going to just be doing the one recording today. I'm away for um, the rest of the week uh, for a, a much needed holiday, which is going to be great. And so today, I know that previously so we were going to look at um, war reporting in the Soviet Union, but ever the fickle... Um, uh, ever, ever the fickle mind has uh, adopted a slightly different approach. The I, I was reflecting on the very near um, experience of possibly a, a fascist government in Spain, which mercifully, by uh, a couple of votes, we've we've avoided. Uh, if you've been following the news, obviously this is quite a quite a serious issue and, and something um, that um, is very alarming. You know. Um, large far-right uh, parties all across Europe and uh, you know if you think uh, if, if you think that Brexit Britain has extremists you ain't seen nothing yet however this put me in mind of um, perceptions of Spain from uh, overseas during the 1930s particularly British perceptions of Spain um, and what Spain and the uh, the revolt of the fascist generals meant for um, British people um, who were onlookers. There is a huge amount of uh, interest and speculation and concern uh, uh, about Spain in Britain's media, in Britain's intellectual circles, and in um, a, a host of other um, a host of other kind of. Uh, uh, environments. And so I'm going to look today at um, The Morbid Age by Richard Overy. It's a book I've mentioned before. It's a fantastic kind of cultural and intellectual history of uh, Britain in the 1930s. It 
it was republished in America as his, as the Gathering Storm. It had to have a kind of a more more dramatic title, and that's to kind of misunderstand the book. It's not this is this this book isn't sort of that sort of standard version of things we get where you know uh, everyone was terrifically complacent about the Nazis, but there was this one aging backbench MP who was uh, a politically busted flush, shouting in the wind, and then he kind of became prime minister. Nothing to do with that, really. It was to look at this, looking at the 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 kind of the the intellectual climate, the ideas that are in play during the nineteen thirties in Britain. A sense of declinism, uh, a fear that civilization is on the edge, and also uh, an understanding that there that this thing called civilization, which many kind of people in British elite circles imagined was represented best by the British Empire, um, was the, the kind of the barbarians are at the games. So we're going to look in the book today at um, chapter eight, sorry about the, the background noise there, Voyage of the Death Ship, uh, War and the Fate of the World. Richard Overy writes, it's difficult to date with any precision the point at which the war seemed a certainty. Year after year, there were discordant voices predicting conflict at any time. Guessing when the war would come became a morbid parlour game in the 1930s. In 1934, the journalist Hubert Knickerbocker toured Europe's capitals to ask leading political figures when they thought war might break out. At the end of his journey, he published Will War Come to Europe? The question, according to British diplomat John Wheeler Bennett, in his introduction to the book, that all thinking men and women in England are putting themselves uh, are putting to themselves today. The responses Knickerbocker elicited were a mixed bag of gloom and wishful thinking. Admiral Haughty, Regent of Hungary, Thomas Masaryk, President of Czechoslovakia, were the ones are the only ones to represent to reply that there will be no war. Bulgarian Premier, a Bulgarian Premier thought war was, was inevitable. Louis Barthieu, uh, the French Foreign Minister, believed that it was about to break out at any moment. Mussolini told Knickerbocker that war would come in several years' time and a, um, a prudent response um, from a leader already planning the invasion of Ethiopia. Edvard Benes, the um, Czech Foreign Minister, came closest when he said the chances were even that war would break out in five years' time. Knickerbocker found throughout his tour the prevalence of what he called the catastrophe theory, and this view among Europeans of every nationality that when war came it would end civilization. There's an interesting um, postscript to uh, Peacemakers by Margaret Macmillan, the history of the Paris Peace Conference, in which she said that you know that one of the things that the peacemakers should be given some kind of credit for isn't, you know, not that this kind of standard view that it was a flawed piece, was that any piece was a, um, a, a was, was possible at all. That what the peacemakers achieved was um, 20 years uh, of trying to rein in imp an impossible situation, trying to control the this kind of explosion of new nationalisms in Europe, which were the product of the decline of four empires um, and that um, the fact that this didn't lead to all-out war kind of immediately is something uh, in their credit. 
of course, in lots of in um, lots of parts of Europe, war didn't end in 1918. What ended in 1918 was a war between the um, Entente, uh, the uh, Entente powers, um, and the the Allies, the the Central Powers and and the Allied powers. Um, what you get instead after 1918 are wars in the the Baltic states. The Russian Civil War, wars between Greece and Turkey, um, and uh, various kind of uh, border wars between Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, um, and you get something uh, approximating low-level civil war for a while in in, in Germany. Um, given if you factor in. The, the kind of the, the, the level of societal violence and the assassination of government ministers and that sort of thing and the uh, things like the the, the the cat putsch and Hitler's later Munich putsch. Um, so you, you don't get a peaceful Europe uh, as a result of the, the Versailles Treaty where particularly it takes at least five years for um, the, 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 the vanquished, the, the states that once made up uh, the German, Austro-Hungarian, Russian and Ottoman empires that have been destroyed uh, by the war to return to any sort of kind of stability. Richard Overy writes, The guessing game um, filled almost the whole decade. In The Shape of Things to Come, published in 1933, H.G. Wells suggested with uncanny foresight the ten years of final world warfare would start around 1940 over the issue of Danzig. A speculative date he shared, among many others, with economist John Maynard Keynes and, the, and with many distinguished contributors to a volume published by the Interparliamentary Union in 1931, reissued in a popular version in 1933 on what would be the character of a new war? A book so remorselessly certain of war that one reviewer described it as the most terrible book that had ever been written. A millenarian preacher in May 1933, speaking at Queen's Hall in London, told his audience that Hitler was the Antichrist and, less plausibly, that the meeting of the World Economic Conference in London a few weeks later was the signal foretold in the Book of Revelation for the onset of Armageddon. He told his acolytes to expect a summons to the righteous on the, on the 12th of June 1933 and the inauguration of the millennium in 1940. By the mid-1930s, predicting world war at any moment was embedded in popular discussion. The historian Dennis Brogan, in Omens of 1936, published in that year, in January that year, observed that the imminence of war, which had until recently had been believed only by the pessimistic and the bitterly acute, was now thought to be true by everyone except the most cynical. At the cusp of the new year, Brogan reflected, we all stand in the shadow of a great fear, and if the angel of death is not yet abroad in the land, we can hear the beating of his wings, and see them too, filling our old familiar sky. Brogan spoke, he said, for the average man, 
who had become aware of formidable forces being unchained. The language perhaps more appropriate to the millenarian vision than the cautious academic. So we, we have to avoid a kind of a particular thinking error here. We know what happened. We know that uh, in September 1939, the Second World War begins. Now, obviously, I mean, that, that depends on looking at it from a kind of an Anglo-centric perspective. The various arguments are that, particularly in China, a world war had been going on for some time. We know that um, in the, the, the version of events that were following, what, what occurs. However, people at the time didn't. Um, it was, and, and also, nothing, not even war, is always inevitable. It was, this was Hitler's intention to go to war. Um, and the, the, sh the, the dynamics of the war eventually lead to global conflict, not just war in, in Europe. But nothing is, is, is set in stone, certainly not by 1936. So we, we have to kind of mentally get out of this set, this mindset that um, people were predicting correctly or incorrectly the, the shape of things to come. They, you know, they were making educated guesses, some more educated that, than, than others. Um, and, but there was nothing inevitable about the outbreak of war. After 1933, of course, um, most people, um, most people's kind of worldview across Europe is, is affected by um, the elevation of Hitler coming to power. Um, and this, this is a kind of a, a game changer, particularly in the Soviet Union and their kind of understanding of what was likely to happen. So for, for lots, of, um, lots of perspectives, 1933 kind of changes everything. The European left suddenly um, embraces Stalinism as, as its kind of last hope um, that uh, whatever the kind of crimes of the Soviet Union, that somebody like Stalin would be able to come to Europe's rescue and would be the only credible force to be able to fight fascism. Richard Overy writes, the mid-1930s seemed to have represented the watershed in British perceptions of the inevitable slide to war, encouraged though not entirely caused by the further erosion of the, uh, the post-war settlement, the Locarno Pact and the covenant of the League um, by German rearmaments and Italian aggression in Ethiopia. Fear of war had deeper roots than these. Rogan's metaphor of unchained forces suggests um, a more profound concern over the future of civilization rather than reflecting a fear of war alone. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The idea of war as the agent of dissolution greatly simplified the web of anxieties about the economy, the demographic future, or the nature of modern man, because everything was reduced down to an apparently unavoidable choice between death and survival. There were, in the, during the 1930s, in various intellectual circles and literary circles, all these kind of thoughts, uh, thoughts about the kind of the, the future of civilization, the nature of society, the idea, um, the idea that kind of the, the, the gene pool is is in decline. You have all these kind of splendid young uh, Etonians and Harrovians and gentlemen having been wiped out in the First World War, and to uh, you know an, an aghast. Uh, British upper class looks at the the kind of the the working classes that are are left over and thinks well my words we will be outbred by them you know civilization and culture will, will come to an end and we're talking about some sort of fairly fairly high profile uh, figures here from the kind of the Bloomsbury circles and other kind of intellectual talking shops so there were the all all these kind of uh, long term anxieties about kind of the nature of civilization it, it, itself. Um, a minority of um, Britain's intellectual class has looked to um, communism um, as some sort of salvation. But uh, for an, an, all, an awful lot of um, um, the, uh, the sort of the, the, the intellectual, literary and cultural elites, ideas like eugenics were highly popular. Um, encouraging poor people to breed less um, was seen as, as an entirely laudable goal. Um, the origins, this is not a nice thought, but the origins of Britain's birth control movement are in this eugenic moment. Uh, Marie Stopes, uh, the birth control campaigner, was in part campaigning for fewer working class babies. In 1936, John Strachey, writing on collective security for the left book news, insisted that Britain now faced the last chance, John Strachey, the famous British communist, um, to try to rescue the civilised order or face a new, a second world war. The country had less than a year, he estimated, before general war is certain. Louis Fisher, writing to Beatrice Webb in January 1936, explained that in his view, the threat of war reflected the fact that the whole system is bankrupt. Louis Fisher and Beatrice Webb were um, Soviet sympathisers. They were um, part of what I've often talked about, the, the fellow traveller movement, the in intellectual movement in the 1930s, that whilst not communist, uh, certainly had uh, sympathies towards the Soviet Union. Though they didn't advocate Stalinism for uh, Western countries, they thought it was quite all right where it was and probably civilising the right sorts of barbarians. Um, 
The question European nations all lived with, Fisher continued, was whether uh, war would come in 1936 or 1937, adding, the most people hope for is a postponement to 1938. By early 1938, the idea of war as a system, uh, a systemic inevitability was widespread. The New Statesman editor Kingsley Martin titled his lecture to a University um, of London weekend school in March, The Present World War. A few months before, a Fabian Society lecture presented The War Horizon, as if war were now a visible part of the political landscape. The record of a new Fabian Research Bureau two-day symposium in June 1938 on the strategic situation in Europe shows that the assumption of unavoidable war underscored every debate. Even the Pacifist National Peace Council, in a statement issued in April 1938 on peace and democracies, deplored a world in which general war will become inevitable. From the publication of Knickerbocker's book onwards, much of the discussion of war was dominated by the question when rather than whether. It's not unreasonable, writes Richard Overy, to argue that uh, important sections of the British public were gripped in the last half decade by war psychosis, which came to dominate many areas of public discussion, like living, as the pacifist Leslie Paul remarked in 1936, in the lunatic asylum of the universe. This is not to deny that the international system faced serious difficulties, but the popular view focused not so much on individual points of crisis, but on the apparent irredeemable nature of a political order doomed to destruction. The view of war as a psychological or physical disease of civilization, or rather of a civilization so pathologically disordered that it could not avoid the self-incurred and self-destructive malady of war, found a ready audience already predisposed to think in morbid terms of the current um, of the current crisis. There are examples of such fears provoking a physical or psychological reaction amongst those who suffered them. The historian A.L. Rouse left a, um, a revealing account in his diary of the effect of prolonged crisis and fear of war and had on his own physical disposition. In an entry in August 1937, Rouse found himself so disturbed the papers are en uh, are full of the world going to pieces, and continued, the effect of this endless agony I have been living in since 1931 is curious. I believe the whole of the left feels it, tiredness, hopelessness. They have us by the balls. There is nothing we can do. A few lines further on, Rouse was tortured by the hideous thought that human society actually needs the disease. Matter gathers up in the human organism which demands an outlet. They must fire off. They can't stand being at peace. Only after a real good do is there an interval of peace, and their spirits are kept down. Then they must break out again, like pus out of a cyst, an abscess. The thing is getting such an extension, is growing all, um, all along the roots and tendons of society. It's more like a cancer. It's interesting to see how uh, people like Rouse viewed war as a pathology. War is this kind of illness in the in the body. On the other hand, the likes of, of Hitler viewed war as the healthiest of processes. And it was how you're going to cleanse 
the, the racial body in Germany. That's not quite right, in fact. Hitler thought you needed to cleanse the racial body in Germany first of the riffraff and uh, racial uh, minorities, and then you'd be ready for war. And war would be the great test, and war would forge the nation. It would stop the, um, you know, uh, it, it, would, it would kill off unnecessary parts of society. And the tough ones would remain. It would be a kind of a Darwinian process. And so in, in, in Hitler's eyes, um, war was this natural, inevitable and even desirable kind of cha racial challenge. Now, of course, these are kind of obviously ridiculous ideas um, and ideas which are, are central to fascist thinking. Uh, even even today, you know, if you uh, ever have the misfortune to um, see kind of uh, online fascist thought, they have a sort of a garbled version of, of, of these the, these kinds of um, kind of rom romanticist, uh, misunderstood Darwinist kind of ideas. Um, and I think the other thing that's interesting, the other thing that has an echo with now is um, our, our preoccupation of thinking about war. If you look at kind of the commentariat's view of Ukraine, <coughs> China's threats towards Taiwan, and other possible flashpoints in the world, and you know, the predictions of when those two kind of conflagrations might meet up, when China and the Russian Federation might kind of have a more formal arrangement helping one another, and the, these sorts of things. There are all sorts of kind of predictions and projections, and you know, he's hoping that these things never come to pass. Um, but our time seems to be similar to the 1930s, in this and other kind of key regards, in that we seem to have exited from a period of time um, where war between great powers or superpowers was was seen as, as impossible, um, and, and the wars of the last say twenty years have been mainly the you know the nine eleven wars. Russia's various conflicts on its borders and uh, other aspects of kind of first world powers punching downwards. Now we seem to be in a period where we are entertaining what war, say for example, between America and China will look like. And this has been taken very, very seriously. What that means and whether that happens and all the rest is, is kind of... You know, perhaps not for this podcast to, to speculate, uh, but there are certain, certain kind of interesting parallels. So we must draw to a close in, in a moment, and, and this is a great topic, it's a great chapter, and one that certainly we'll be re returning to. Uh, I'll be signing off for a week now, uh, I need a rest, um, and I will catch you all when I come back. I want to say a big thank you, we had some technical issues last week, I just want to say a big thank you to all the people uh, who obviously like the podcast and care about it, who reached out to say, you know, this recording is a bit missing. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And it just reminds me that the people that like what I do and, you know, uh, care about it and uh, enjoy it and get something out of it. So thanks, everybody. Take good care. And it'd be great to hear from other folks. Let me know if you are listening to this and you, you want to chat about history. I'm always here. You can find me through a multitude of different channels. I always reply. 
and um, if there's a question you have or something you want to raise or just you're curious about, message me. I'd love to talk. Take good care, everyone. All the best. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.